Acts chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 together. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, that's a description of Christians, I like that. I want to be a person of the way, the way of Christ. What a great description that is. I marked that in my Bible. Whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither did eat nor drink. I want to preach to you to this morning about a complete 180. You talk about somebody that did a 180 change. That's what Paul did here. And let's look at what changed in his life, why it changed, and how it changed. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd speak to us today. Thank you for the change you've made in those of us that profess you as Savior. I thank you that in Christ we're new creatures. We've done a complete 180. Our nature's completely changed, been born again. And I thank you for that. I thank you for this man, Paul, whose example and testimony is still encouraging us today. And I pray we learn from his life. And as he was a man on a mission, help us to be men and women on mission as well. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. I would imagine many of our younger uh, couples and teenagers and college students would maybe not recognize this name, Mel Trotter. But some of you older timers might remember the name Mel Trotter. Mel Trotter was infamously known for being a drunkard of, of catastrophic proportions. What he's probably most infamously known for is he had a, a daughter, a juvenile daughter, who died. And as she was dead, they prepared her body, and he's known for stealing the shoes off of his dead daughter's feet and taking them and selling them so he could buy more drink. One night he was drunk, and he, he staggered into the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. And he heard the gospel... And he got saved. His life radically changed. I do understand that not everybody changes at the same speed or the same degree. But Mel Trotter's life radically changed. And he naturally had a, a burden for people like himself that struggled with, with booze and addiction. And so he started a rescue mission in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And from there he went on to found 60 more Rescue missions stretching from Boston to San Francisco. You would look at somebody that goes from stealing the shoes off of his dead daughter's feet to trade in for some alcohol. 
to starting 60 gospel missions from Boston to San Francisco, I think we would all agree that's a 180. That's a change. And what's amazing to me is Christianity is filled with example after example after example of the gospel's power to transform and change sinful man. But I would make the argument this morning, none of them is more remarkable than the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I was trying to think of what it could be like. It would be very difficult for us to articulate, but it would almost be like Osama bin Laden getting saved and becoming an evangelist in Saudi Arabia. This change was so remarkable that one commentator called it the greatest event in church history after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I think you could really agree with him that outside of the coming of the Holy Spirit, nothing was used uh, to impact the growth and the development and the history of the church like Saul of Tarsus getting saved. We're going to study his life. So as we do that, we must ask ourselves the question, who exactly is this Saul of Tarsus fellow? Well, he was born, obviously, in Tarsus. Tarsus was an important Roman city. It was famous for its education. It was famous for its prestigious university. Uh, uh, as you, we'll, we'll study this as we get longer in his life. But Saul's father must have been a Roman citizen because Saul was a Roman citizen by birth. So we recognize that his father must have been a Roman citizen. His father was also a Pharisee, as Saul was a Pharisee. Saul studied and, and was... Uh, trained by the most respected rabbi of his day, Gamaliel, and, and, and he became the ringleader and the mastermind of the persecution of the early church, especially we see it in chapter 8, as we mentioned Stephen's death. Who was Stephen? Stephen was a saved man. Stephen served in the early church, and he was the first recorded martyr in Scripture as he was stoned to death. And as you know, Saul, it says, was consenting unto his death and kind of stood back and kind of kept the coats for everybody as they murdered Stephen, and he was approving of this. So it is fitting that such a unique individual like Saul would have such a unique conversion experience. Here's what he did. He went from a Jew by birth, Roman by citizenship, and Greek by education to a Christian missionary theologian, evangelist, pastor, and leader of the church all by God's grace. We could say he did a complete 180. Somebody said it this way, nature forms us, sin deforms us, education informs us, prison may reform us, but only Jesus transforms us. And that's exactly what he did for Paul and I want to point out in the time we have together, I want to just show you this morning three ways Saul's life was completely changed. And I hope that your testimony would agree with his. And let me tell you this morning, if you've never been saved, if you've never had this transformational experience from Jesus, today you can. I want you to see this, number one. Saul changed from darkness to light. He changed from darkness to light. Would you look at verse 3? It says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. There's a specific purposeful emphasis on light here in this text. We could say it this way, that Saul was living in darkness. Not literally he could see, he saw light. It was daytime when this happened, but 
but he was living in darkness, not uh, physically, but spiritually. He was in darkness about who Jesus was. He was in darkness about who Jesus is. In fact, uh, that's not an uncommon expression in, in Scripture, walking in darkness. John talked about it in his writings. And walking in darkness, basically, we could say it this way, is it's living in sin and being unconcerned that you are offending a holy God. Can I tell you that I think the majority of people in our world today are literally walking in spiritual darkness, meaning this, they, they have no idea who Jesus is, and they have no idea that their sin is an offense and affront to a holy God. I think most people think that, hey, nobody's perfect, and there's always somebody worse than myself. And, and we know about Saul, what he felt like is he felt like he had a measure of righteousness. He, he was a Pharisee. He was living a good Jewish life, but, but he, he did not realize that he was offending God. He was breathing out these threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord. And that's why God at one point says, why are you persecuting me? He did not recognize his sin. And so... Here he is, breathing out these threatenings. Man, think about threatenings. A threat is, is if you don't do what I want, I'm going to hurt you. That's a, that's, a, that's a bad way to go about things, right? And notice it says there's slaughterings. That's a, when I think of a slaughter, that's a gruesome killing. I mean, think about the way Stephen was murdered. Giant rocks used to pelt and maybe crush his bones and he lied there bleeding. I mean, it was a gr gruesome way to go. And this was what Saul was doing. He was totally ignorant of it. But aren't you thankful that in this passage, light shone around him, if you will? I love Jesus' words in John chapter 8 and verse 12. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Saul at one moment was in darkness, but light shone around him. And I want to point something out that I think you might appreciate. Notice when it says there suddenly there was a bright light around him. You would think that after verse 1 when it talks about threatenings and slaughterings and all of this going on and his sinfulness, that when the light shone, that it would be a light of judgment on him. But praise God is what we sang about today, that it was a grace that suddenly appeared to him. It was not the judgment of God that appeared to him. That's pretty amazing. You see, this bright appearance was designed to get his attention. That's what the light did. God shone his light on him to get his attention. When we lived in California for, for a stretch, my family and I, we lived in an apartment. And it was a little apartment, and so all seven of us were crammed in this apartment. We were downtown, we were real close to the beach there, and just in this apartment, and so sometimes we'd want to get out, and it was beautiful weather all the time, and we'd just take a walk. And and sometimes we just walk to the grocery store and pick up some things that we needed and walk back. And one night, Mindy and I were walking to the grocery store. If you've ever been to Los Angeles, it's not uncommon to see a police helicopter up in the air with a spotlight looking for somebody. And one night we were, we were walking, Mindy and I just walking the block, going to the uh, grocery store. And, and uh, before we knew it, the spotlight, there was a helicopter and the spotlight was on us. It got our attention. We went to the grocery store, picked up our things, and came back, and the helicopter, we could still hear it, and it was going, we got a little closer to our house, and there was, uh, the spotlight was on somebody else, except this time they were sprawled out on the ground being cuffed by the police, and I thought, well, it wasn't us, it was him, right? You know, uh, a bright light being shined on you is, is, it'll get your attention, and God wanted to get his attention, but, but it wasn't just to get his attention, it was also to, to enlighten him. 
See, Saul's view of who Jesus was, and by the way, if I interchange Saul and Paul, it's the same guy, and, and uh, we'll explain that more as time goes on, but forgive me if I use different names here. He's referred to as Saul here, but Saul and Paul, same guy. Uh, God, he, he viewed, excuse me, Saul viewed Jesus as some commoner who died a criminal's death. To him, that's all Jesus was, some, some false messiah, some uh, 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 con man that died a commoner's death. I mean, they had always been taught from Scripture that cursed is the man that hangs on a tree. And so he did not see Jesus the way you and I see Jesus. He saw him as a problem. He saw us as a, him as an imitator. He saw him as somebody uh, uh, to be scorned and ridiculed and rejected instead of accepted and praised as you and I would today. And so God turned the light on for him. God showed him exactly who he was, and now rather than seeing him as some commoner who died a criminal's death, now he sees him as the light of the world. And I want to tell you this morning, our world is walking in great darkness today because we have rejected the great light. It's no surprise to me that our world is getting darker and darker in itself. It's no surprise to us that the world is getting stranger and stranger as we delve further away from the light into darkness. But praise the Lord this morning that there are still churches like this one scattered across the countries like this one where the light of the world still shines. And I'm glad that he may be, Jesus may be ridiculed and mocked and scorned and rejected by some. But aren't you thankful that there was a time where many of us were walking in darkness, but God turned on the light. He got our attention and he enlightened us to who Jesus really is. Can I tell you again this morning, I don't know everybody's heart here today, but if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, friend, stop walking in darkness. He is the light of the world. He is the Savior of mankind. He is the one that can forgive us of our sins and save us from the power of our sins. Let us see Him for who He is. And this day, in Saul's life, as he was on the road to Damascus, God turned the light on for him. He did a complete 180. He was in darkness, now he's in light. Number two, I want you to see this. Saul changed from pride to humility. He changed from pride to humility. Understand that before a man can become a saint, he must first see himself as a sinner. The great commentator Matthew Henry said this, A humbling conviction of sin is the first step towards a saving conversion from sin. That's where it begins for us. You have to be convicted of your sin. Again, I'm not trying to downplay uh, anything in the way some people worship or the methodology or philosophy of some ministry, but, 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 but I, I understand this. When you preach the Bible, sometimes it causes conviction in our life. And that's not a bad thing. I think some people want to come to church to be affirmed. They want to come to church to, to feel good about themselves. And listen, I don't want you to leave here feeling like you're a low-down, good-for-nothing uh, jerk. I mean, that's the way you feel every time you come in the doors. That's, that's a bad thing. I want church life to be encouraging to you, and I want you to be blessed for coming. But the truth of the matter is, is when you get around God's Word, and when you get around the presence of God, you will brush up against his perfection and his holiness and you will experience something that old timers called conviction. That's why some of you every once in a while will say to me, preacher, you're really stepping on my toes today. And I like what some of those old country preachers used to say, well, I wasn't aiming for your toes, I was aiming for your heart, right? 
And again, that's, that's not a bad thing to feel that way because you cannot experience the conversion from sin until you have experienced conviction of sin. One time I was going door-to-door uh, -door evangelism. I knocked on a door and there was a middle-aged lady and I said, if you died today, do you know you'd go to heaven? She said, yeah. I said, well, how do you know you'd go to heaven? She said, well, I'm a good person. I said, well, you know, the Bible says that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. I said, can I ask you a question? Have you ever lied before? She said, nope, never. <laughs> oh. I said, you ever stolen anything? She said, never. Really? I said, you never even cheated on a test? Nope. Huh. I said, uh... Have you, did you ever disobey your parents? Nope, never, not one time. Like, really? Like, I told you to clean your room, you didn't clean your room? No, I always did what my parents said. I said, well, I can't help you, have a good day. <laughs> I, I, I mean, until you recognize that you have a problem, until you recognize that you're a sinner, until you recognize that you have experienced conviction over your own sin, you, you cannot experience this conversion from sin. So notice this, why, what happens in this text. Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul. And, and I hear tenderness in that. Me personally, I don't hear, Saul! So, no, I, I hear him saying, you know, so it's like he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I would that you'd come to me. No, I, I hear him with tenderness saying, Saul, Saul, why are you, why are you persecuting me? Did you notice he, he didn't say, why are you persecuting them? Did you notice he said, why are you persecuting me? Now, now some of you that are Bible students, been around the Bible a while, you'll, you'll understand what I'm about to say. God never asks questions because he needs answers. Like you'll go all the way back to Genesis. Don't you love that? Adam, Adam, where are you? It's not like God was like, where'd he go? No, he knew exactly where Adam was. But he was asking Adam the question for Adam's sake. So when God asks questions, it's not for his sake. He's not collecting information. He wanted Saul to consider what he was doing. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Saul was harassing and mistreating God's church. And again, I pointed out to you, interestingly to me, Jesus said, me, not them. Because what you did to do to his church, you are doing to him. And let that serve as a reminder to all of us. May God keep us and help us to never do damage to his church. Listen, let's, let's be very careful about that. God's doing a great work here, but I would never want to do anything personally to damage God's work. And so, so if that means that I've got to leave or do this or do that, listen, I never want to do something that's going to hurt his church because he said, why, he, he wasn't saying something like this, why'd you do that to Oakwood? He said, why'd you do that to me? And I can illustrate it this way. If you met me in the lobby after the service and, and stomped on my foot, I'd say, why'd you do that to me? You could say, well, it's nothing personal. I like you, I just don't like your feet. Well, that's absurd. So he was hurting his people, but Jesus said, you're hurting me. And he was pointing out to him, hey, this is something that's wrong in your life. In fact, he, he, he talks about conviction. It's, it's kind of an illustrative way that he does it. Did you notice that there? We need to give some explanation to this. But he says in verse 5, uh, who art thou, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus. Again, he turned the light on. Whom you are persecuting. 
He said, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He's ta- you know what he's talking about there? He's talking about conviction. You ever been pricked in your conscience? We even use that expression. Listen, guys, I'm telling you, it has happened to me over and over and over again while I'm preaching. There have been moments where I was preaching and the Holy Spirit would say, <laughs> you talking to these people about that? What about you? How about you, bub? He calls me that sometimes. <laughs> He'll prick your conscience. And, and this was kind of an illustrative way. Understand in those days, oxen were used to pull plows. And these oxen would rebel, uh, uh, especially a new ox would rebel against the work by, by flinging their back heels against the beam. And so farmers would put sharp spikes on this beam, and these oxen would kick back and be pricked by these, these spikes on the beam, and they would be wounded. And let me tell you something, even a very stubborn ox would get tired of that after a while and would settle down and go to work. And many times in our life, God has pricked our consciences. He's spoken to us. He has shown us our sin And he's directed himself so that he could change us. Not so that he could condemn us, but so that he could change us. So I asked myself this question. I was studying that. What were these these pricks of consciousness that Saul was feeling in his life? I don't exactly know, but we could guess a little bit. Do you think that Saul continually heard the sobbing of women and children? I think that that could have been something. You don't think that after a hard day of persecuting, he might have laid down in his bed and thought, man, I arrested 17 guys today. This is great. You don't think he he didn't see the faces of little boys with tears running down their face as their dad was carried off to prison or their dad was carried off to execution because it's just simply his faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe that was the prick in his conscience that he was experiencing. I think that could be. You don't think that sometimes maybe Saul might have woken up in the middle of the night having a dream, and what was his dream? Maybe he saw the bloody corpse of Stephen laying in a sandy road somewhere as the blood spilled out and mingled with the dirt. You don't think he saw maybe his crushed skull from the rocks that he had stood by and with glee looked at? You you don't think that that might have just troubled his consciousness a little bit? Maybe it was the many Old Testament scriptures he knew. Can I remind everybody in this room today, Jesus is the hero of every story in the Bible. Sometimes he hides behind the lattice work of the pages of Scripture. But let me tell you something, when you read about Abraham going up uh, Mount Moriah, you are not reading about Abraham and Isaac, you are reading about Jesus. When you see Noah building his ark, there is one door and that ark is pitched within and without. Let me tell you something, that is about Jesus. You go through every line and every Scripture, Jesus is the hero of every story. And Paul was a student and a master of scripture you don't think that maybe he was reading some passage and he thought huh huh could be oh no but there was that conviction that was going on in his life I don't know what these pricks were but whatever they were God used them to affect Saul Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this Today we have so many built up who were never even pulled down. So many filled who were never emptied. 
so many exalted who were never humbled, that the more I earnestly remind you that the Holy Ghost must convince of sin or we cannot be saved. And friend, that's why it's a warning to us in modern day ministry that yes, why we do not want to naturally or, or, or unnaturally commit offense towards people, but we must preach the truth because without conviction of sin, there cannot be conversion of sin or conversion from sin. So I'm thankful for an old-timey preacher that preached the gospel in a pulpit like this one, and I experienced conviction. I'm thankful for that, because if it wasn't from that, I would have not been changed from my pride to humility, because you will not call upon a, a Savior if you are self-sufficient in and of yourself. If you are filled with pride, you will never turn to trust Him and depend on Him. This was a little boy. I sat over here on a front row like these guys. And for whatever reason, I was engaged that day. I've told you I grew up in church, and I'm glad my parents didn't really let me color or goof off in church, but, but that didn't mean you are always paying attention. And I sat over here, and for some reason, I heard the preacher preaching, and God used the preaching that day to convict me. What he did, this is how I describe conviction. Listen, I grew up in church. I knew the stories. So when he talked about, when he said all men are sinners, for some reason that day it was different. For, for, before you would sit there and say, hey, well, yeah, everybody's a sinner. Have you met my brother? He's a real sinner. You're always thinking about some bad thing somebody else did. But that day, wait a second, it was different that day. I was a sinner. That's called conviction. I'd heard over and over and over all my life that Jesus died for sinners. But that day was something was different. Because I knew I was a sinner, I knew Jesus died for me. When the preacher said, you, you need to trust and call on Jesus, I wasn't doing what most people do when bow your heads and close your eyes. Oh, not me, man. I'm looking around. Who's raising their hand? There's some sinner in here who needs to be saved. No, it was me. You see, that's the difference between conviction. Conviction becomes very real. And Saul was a very proud man. He was a very accomplished man. But God had to bring him to humility in order for him to be saved. And I'm again telling you, no one gets saved who is proud in their own self-righteousness. And no one gets saved who thinks his good deeds will commend him to God. And Saul was no exception to that. Neither am I. Neither are you. See, I think that's why some people find offense in the gospel. You, you telling me I'm not a good person? You, you telling me I, I'm lacking something in my life? You're trying to tell me that, that, that I can't do something to earn it? The answer, unfortunately, for your liking is yes, that is what I'm trying to tell you. You're not as good as you think you are. You can't do anything to get to heaven. You need a Savior. And I'm glad that God changed him from his pride to his humility. I want you to see thirdly, Saul changed from defiance to submission. Look at verse 5. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Verse 6, Lord, what would thou have me to do? I love that. The question was not whether is he Lord. No, he is Lord. The question was, are we going to submit to his lordship? Would Saul submit to it? Will we submit to it? And I love this. This teaches us a valuable lesson this morning. Salvation begets service. And I tell you, God didn't save you to sit around. He saved you to serve. 
So that's a natural reaction. Oh, God save me. Now what, what am I supposed to do? Can, can, I, can I point some things out to you, though, about this? Look what he answers him. Lord, what thou, will thou help me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the city, and it will be told what you need to do next. Here's a, here's a good quote. Humble duties are given before high duties. Very simply, God said, all right, you want to know what to do? Just go to the city. I'll tell you what to do when you get there. Well, what am I going to do when I get there? Who am I supposed to talk to? Don't worry about that. Just do what I said to do. I'll let you know then. That's how God often works. I find it very interesting that God did not communicate to him at that very moment. Lord, what would you have me to do? Oh, I'm going to make you an apostle. And you're going to plant churches all over this region. And I'm going, to, I'm going to use you to write half of the New Testament. He didn't say anything like that. He said, just go on into the city, and I'll tell you what to do then. He told him what to do at that hour. And can I tell you this morning, I think many Christians miss God's will because they neglect their immediate duty. They neglect their immediate duty. And what that does is it keeps them from meeting the right people it keeps them from hear, hearing the right messages. It keeps them from developing the right abilities and the right habits because they just won't simply do what they're supposed to do today. And I love the fact that Saul was changed from defying God's plan to being a part of it. Here he is, he's trying to thwart God's plan. He's trying to stop God's plan. He's trying to do everything he can to, to hinder it, which is a fool's errand. But now he changes and says, I'm part of God's plan. And whatever God says to do, I'm going to do it. Man, I wish I had that, that pliability in my life, that submission in my life. He was changed from a defiant man into a submissive man. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. What a change. A 180. Completely turned around. So let me ask you a few questions this morning. Are you walking in darkness? And I want to have a gospel preaching church, and I want to have an invitation for, for anybody to get saved anytime they need to get saved. Because, man, this world is dark. And we have the light. And we need to shine the light. Friend, there's no sense in sitting in darkness. Are you in the darkness? Are you walking in darkness about who Jesus is? Jesus is the Son of God. He's sinless. He's our Savior and our substitute that died on the cross, was buried in a tomb and rose again. And anybody that would put their faith in Him can be saved. Are you walking in darkness? I want to ask you, are you saved? Maybe you're here this morning and you've been kicking against conviction. Maybe some of you have been coming here and you sit here and you, and you hear that question over and over again, are you 100% sure you died, died, you go to heaven? And you know there's something pulling and nagging in your heart that says, I don't know that. Listen, stop kicking against that. As a pastor, I've seen that happen. I've seen people who come repeatedly, 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 and God's working. And then one, one invitation, boy, that hand shoots up. Why? Because they're tired of kicking against the conviction. Listen, listen to it today. How has God humbled you? I'll be honest with you, on my prayer list, when I confess my sins to God, and by the way, we ought to be doing that on a regular basis. We used to hear preachers say this, keep short accounts with God. Number one on my list all the time is pride. 
so bothered at my own self-sufficiency, my own selfishness, my own self-righteousness. And I want God to change me and humble me. Do a 180. Maybe today you've been saved, but can you answer honestly the question, how has God humbled you? And thirdly, how submissive are you? Are you working with God or are you working against God? Listen, life is hard enough as it is. Why would I want to resist God? Why would I want God to resist me? I was reading in our Bible class the verse the other day out of Timothy where, where the Bible talks about how we're trying to help those that are opposing themselves. Man, when you work against God, you are opposing yourself. Learn to just submit to Him. And I pray the Lord will help us. Are you working with God or against God?